Now hear the word of God from Romans chapter 8. I will be reading verses 28 through 30. Charlene Crawford, do you want to read this passage for us? Come on up. Charlene loves this passage. And so I think we'll have, we'll, it'll, she'll have a special anointing to read, to read, uh, Romans 8, 828. It begins right there. That's my birthday verse, in case you didn't know. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The word of the Lord. May God add a blessing to the reading of the word of the Lord. (laughs) Thank you, Charlene. All right, that's an extra special reading for you this morning. Let us pray. Father God, we uh, ask that you be with us as we gather around your word. I pray that uh, your Holy Spirit would speak to us, that uh, our minds would be illuminated. I pray that our hearts would be softened to what it is that you would have us do and think this day. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So when things are going well, we generally don't ask the big questions. When we're fat and happy, when we are in love and content, when the world is smiling on us and treating us like royalty, we don't ask the big questions. Questions like, what am I doing? Questions like, what is the point or the purpose of this life? Questions like, will my life count for anything? And you know what? Those are good questions. They're important questions that we should be asking. Socrates said that the unexamined life is not worth living. Now that might seem a little harsh, but if we're not thinking about our lives and consciously reflecting upon the value of what we're doing, if our lives are unexamined, then we're living like a simple animal. Now, I love animals. I love my pet dog, Snuffy. I love Pedro, the VCS bunny. But like the unusual, but I don't want to be like those animals or like this animal here. Lovely and simple, though he may be thinking only about his bone. I don't want to be unthinking and unreflective. These are important questions about our lives. And they often come to us during times of struggle. Times that shake us out of our complacent comfort. These questions often come to us uh, in the midst of the storms of our lives, in the drudgery of our jobs, in our frustration over relationships or the lack of relationships. And sometimes they will come to mind under the preaching of a pesky pastor who refuses to allow you to be lazy and comfortable. These are important questions, and these are questions that the Apostle Paul digs into in this passage from Romans that we read earlier, that Charlene read for us. This week we continue our series of sermons through the book of Romans, and we come to one of the most beloved assurances in all of Scripture, namely that all things work together for good. 
This jewel of a promise is in fact the tip of a theological iceberg. And so the riches of this promise are about 90% deeper than first meet the eye. This morning we're going to dig into this single verse, Romans 8.28. Because it's filled with deep truths, wonderful truths, life-changing truths. Up on the screen... You're going to see Romans 8.28, and I've broken it into five chunks, five phrases, and we're going to take a look at each of those phrases individually. So here we go. Phrase number one is, and we know. Paul begins by saying, and we know, or now we know. So we have to ask, who is the we in this phrase? Who is doing the knowing? Well, there are three options that I can see. The first option is that Paul is using the so-called royal we. Some people use the word we when they really mean I. There's a story told about Queen Victoria. I can't vouch for its truth, but it was published in 1919. The story is that one day a servant ventured into dinner at Windsor Castle at which the queen was present, and he began to tell a risque story. When the man finished, the queen gave him an icy stare and said, we're not amused. That's the royal way. She really meant, I am not amused. Could Paul be using the royal we? Well, as it turns out, in this case, the answer is no. Because elsewhere in Romans, Paul uses the non-royal, I know, when he's talking about himself, When he says, we know, Paul means something different from, I know. The second option is that Paul is talking about himself and some other person that he's referenced a little bit earlier. For example, if Paul had been talking about his friend Silas, he might say, we are planning on traveling to Jerusalem. But that option is not available to us here either because Paul hasn't mentioned any person or persons that he might be referring to. And so the third and the final option is that when Paul says, we know, he's talking about himself and his readers. And specifically, his readers as Christians, as representatives of the universal church. When Paul says, we know... He's actually referring to the whole Christian community, to the universal church. Paul says, we know seven times in the book of Romans. And every time, what we know is a fundamental Christian truth. And if you line up all the we knows of the letters of Paul, you get something like a creed or a confession of faith. You get something like the core doctrine that every Christian understands. Let me give you some examples. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Romans 2, 2. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Romans three nineteen. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Romans 6, 6. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again, Romans 6, 9. We know that the law is spiritual, Romans seven fourteen. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, Romans eight twenty two. And then the seventh and final, we know, in Romans, Romans eight twenty eight. We know. 
That for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. We know, we know, we we, the followers of Jesus Christ, know are the fundamental truths of the gospel. When Paul says we know, he isn't saying, he's saying that this isn't something that Christians would even bother arguing about. Because we know it. There's no need for me to prove this truth to a Christian because we know it. It's a settled fact. It's a fundamental doctrine that for those who love God, all things work together for good. We know that. The second phrase is that for those who love God. This fundamental doctrine of the faith That all things work together for good is not a doctrine about everyone. It is true only for those who love God. Some people hear Romans 8.28 and they think that it says that all things work together for good for all people. But it doesn't say that. Things work together for good but only for those who love God. That's what Paul says. If you love God and get run over by a bus... Even that horrible thing will be good for you. But if you hate God, you better hope you never get run over by a bus. Because that will be the beginning of some serious bad news for you. Paul is not making a universal claim that everything turns out good for everyone because it doesn't. He's making a special claim for those people who love God. For them and for them alone, all things work together for good. The third phrase is, all is all things work together for good. Or in some translations, God works all things together for good. Now this is the beating heart of this verse. This is the great promise. But before we get to enjoy it, I have to point out a curious textual issue. Most of the ancient Greek manuscripts say all things work together for good. But some of the ancient Greek manuscripts, a smaller set but an important set, say God works all things together for good. So the two options are all things work together for good or God works all things together for good. You English majors know that all things work together for good is in the passive voice, while God works all things together for good is in the active. In the passive, just happen automatically, or is there some external agent who's causing them to work that way? I think that this, that in this case, and if you're curious about the details, come talk to me and I'll lay it out for you. I think that in this case, All things work together for good is literally what Paul wrote, but God works all things together for good is what he actually meant. Paul wrote what he wrote, and then pretty soon thereafterwards, it seems that some copyist or some editor of Paul's works added the word tontheon, God, to this sentence to make it clearer This later addition doesn't alter Paul's meaning. Rather, it makes Paul's meaning clearer. Some of you read the Amplified Bible. Anyone have an Amplified Bible? Some of you do, yeah. Uh, And an Amplified Bible, it's a translation that does precisely this. It adds extra words not found in the original text, but words which help us understand the meaning of the original text more clearly. So the upshot is this. 
It is God who makes all things work together for good. God is the one who takes all of the circumstances of this life and knits them together in a way that is good for those who love him. The circumstances of this life don't do that by themselves. The universe does not do that by itself. It is God who is doing that. That's the point of this phrase. And there's a second big idea in this phrase, and that is that God does this with all circumstances. All things work together for good. Not just the good things, but the bad things too. All things work together for good, which is amazing. And which is why Paul is able to write elsewhere, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. In all circumstances? Give thanks to God in all All circumstances. This past year, here at Huntington Valley Presbyterian Church, a number of you have faced some really difficult times. Some of you have faced situations that have knocked the wind out of you, circumstances that have sucked the joy out of your life. Conditions that have been absolutely grinding on your spirits. And it's not because you're wimps or lightweights. It's because what you have faced has been genuinely tough. I understand that. And I also understand that Paul's admonition to give thanks even in the worst of times might seem a little crazy. But it begins to make sense if we understand that God is both sovereign and that God is good and that God works all things together for good for his people. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense for us to give thanks in all circumstances. Now, let me offer a word of caution and then a word of counsel. First, a word of caution. There are some Christians who have gotten the idea that it is somehow unfaithful to admit that they have any problems. That if they tell the truth about the circumstances of their lives, that they might be denying their faith that God can carry them through. That if they say that something's wrong or that something hurts, that they're denying that they're victors in Christ. That's a mistake. And it's not biblical. Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That means that sometimes life is going to be so sweet that all you can do is smile and dance and be filled with joy. But other times it will be so hard that all you can do is cry. And in both cases, Christians are commanded to stand by each other. When someone prospers... When someone gets a great job, when someone finds the love of their life, when someone wins the big prize, when someone is looking sleek and fine, we celebrate with them, we rejoice with them, we are happy for them. Jealousy and envy and covetousness have no place in the Christian life. The first murder, Cain killing Abel, was prompted by jealousy. And the last of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet, shows that God takes jealousy and envy as seriously as he takes murder. We rejoice with those who rejoice. And on the other hand, we weep with those who weep. When someone falls and when someone flounders and when someone strikes out and when someone loses, we weep with them. 
Schadenfreude. It's a beautiful German word. It means that we take pleasure in someone else's failures or humiliation. Schadenfreude. But it has no place in the Christian life. If someone grieves, even if they are our enemies, then we grieve with them. So that's my word of caution. Now my word of counsel. If you are in a season of real difficulty, if you are in a time of your life when it is really hard to give thanks to God, if you find it really hard to believe that God works all things together for good, then I encourage you to be in touch with some of the older saints who have known real suffering in their lives. I would love for you to hear their stories and to be encouraged that God is present with you in the valley of the shadow of death and that he brings life and blessings out of impossible circumstances. I know every person in this congregation, and I probably know your uncles too. It's one of the benefits of a church this size. And there have been so many times that I've wished that One of you, in the midst of the fires of trouble, only knew about this other saint who came through those exact same fires at some earlier point in their lives. Sometimes we sit in the same pew with people or we pass them in the hallway between the services and we don't know that the very pain that we are suffering now is a pain that they went through at some other point in their life. Some of you young saints need to get to know some of our older saints. And some of you older saints need to open up and tell your stories to some of your younger brothers and sisters who are going through the things that you went through. Just a word of counsel. God works all things together for good. The fourth phrase in Romans 8.28 is, for those who are called. Like the phrase... For those who love God, this phrase tells us which individuals this amazing transformation of junk into gold takes place. Scripture does not say that God works all things together for good for all people. Think for a moment about our first reading this morning. Genesis chapter 50. It's the culmination of the story of Joseph and his brothers. Joseph had ten brothers, ten older brothers, one younger brother, ten older brothers, and they all despised him. They wanted him dead, and they sold him as a slave, which is a horrible thing. But what those older brothers intended as an evil for Joseph, God worked out as a good, not only for Joseph, but also for his brothers and for his whole family and for the whole community. Why? Because they were God's called people. Joseph, you'll recall, is the great-grandson of Abraham. God called Abraham and told him that he was going to be the father of a great nation. But if Joseph had not been a slave in Egypt at that particular time, as it turns out, Abraham's family would have died in a great famine. And the promise would have gone unfulfilled. So God turned evil into good for his called people. But the story doesn't end there. You remember how it goes out. After they move down into Egypt to live with Joseph, the descendants of Abraham, in fact, grow into a great nation, 
a populous nation, two million people maybe, a great nation that God had promised, a great nation but an enslaved nation, slaves of Pharaoh. And so God uses Moses to free the children of Israel, his called people, out of Egypt and to send them on their way to the promised land. The evil of slavery was turned into a great good for God's called people. But let's not forget what happened to Egypt. They were struck by plagues. Every firstborn child was killed. And the whole Egyptian army was drowned. Good for Israel... Not so good for Egypt. Scripture does not say that God works all things for good for all people. It says that he works all things for good for those who are called. And finally, phrase number five says, according to his purpose. According to God's purpose. God works all things for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The terrifying and the tragic logical consequence of atheism is that the universe and our lives are entirely devoid of any ultimate purpose and meaning. If atheism is true, then there is ultimately no purpose or meaning in this life or in this world. In the universe without a creator, there can be no purpose, no meaning, no value, no better and worse, no right and wrong. All that's left is an endless purposeless, meaningless sequence of events which amount to nothing. I think the only rational response to that worldview would be a frenzied hedonism. Grab whatever pleasure you can because life is short and in the end the sun's going to blink out anyway and it will be as though nothing was. Frenzied hedonism or suicidal despair, that would be the other rational response If nothing that you think or say or do has any ultimate meaning, if everything will simply end and vanish without a trace, then why even bother? Why even get out of bed? But thanks be to God, because humans are made in the image of God, because as Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has placed eternity into the hearts of men, the overwhelming majority of the world's population in all times has never taken such... Mm, a mistaken view seriously. Our lives do have meaning. And the world does have a purpose. What we do counts. Not just for today, but for eternity. And that purpose and meaning ultimately rests upon God's purposes. As the designer and the creator of the universe, God had a purpose in mind when he made us. The tough thing about God's purposes is that we can never fully understand them because they're bigger than us, because they operate at a level above our view. But the wonderful thing is knowing that God has a purpose for us and that his purpose is good. I don't have to know what God is doing in the cosmos. It's good enough just knowing that I get to be some small part of his grand project. My Uncle Stanley, who was a member of this congregation for a number of years, was a radio man aboard a small ship in World War II. And for three and a half years, his job was to sit in a little room with a headset over his ears, sending and receiving Morse code 
messages to other ships. He was a tiny part of a titanic struggle between good and evil. His messages were in code. He didn't even know what they meant. He had no idea about the larger forces at play or the strategies of admirals or generals, but every day he was able to go to his job trusting that what he was doing was making a difference, that it mattered, that it counted, that it had a meaning, that it had a purpose. Even if from his little radio room he couldn't see that larger picture. I think that's how we live as Christians. There is a titanic struggle going on between good and evil, between powers of order and powers of chaos. God sees and understands the big picture and he calls us according to his purpose to play some small part in that gigantic drama. And here's the best part. If we are in Christ... We are on the winning team. The outcome of the great contest has already been determined because at the cross, Jesus already defeated the powers of sin and death and darkness. God gives us this word of encouragement in the midst of the battle. The battle whose outcome might seem unclear to us from where we stand. God gives us this word of encouragement that no matter what happens, we win. No matter what happens, it will all work out for our good. And if you can grab hold of that truth when you're in the thick of the battle, when you're facing opposition and trouble, when you just can't see how all of this will be okay, if you can grab hold of that truth that even in those circumstances that God is working for your good, then you will be able to give thanks. Thank you, God, for this trial which is growing me and stretching me. Thank you, God, for not making me too rich so that I have to depend on you every day. Thank you, God, for this difficult person in my life. He's helping me discover real patience. Grab hold of that truth that God works all things for good for those who are called according to his purposes and you will discover confidence and peace and contentment, and overwhelming joy. Because Christ, who loves you and died for you, calls you to be united with Him, so that His victory becomes your victory. So that every evil is turned to your good. I don't know about you, but I don't want to live any other way. All of us should be asking questions like, what am I doing? What's the purpose of all of this? Is my life going to count for something? They are really good questions. And the only satisfactory answer is found in Christ. What am I doing? Well, I've been called by Christ into faith and into obedience, into active participation in his kingdom, into his sanctifying work which is preparing me for eternity. What is the purpose of all of this? The glory of God and the endless enjoyment of his people. Will my life count for something? Absolutely. If you love God 
and have been called according to his purpose. Your life counts for now because you are expanding Christ's reign and rule on earth until he comes again. And your life counts for eternity because the day will come soon when you will be called home. When Christ your maker, Christ your redeemer, Christ your Lord will see you face to face and will say to you, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. A life of purpose. A life that counts. A life where all things work together for your good begins by responding to God's call on your life. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary. And heavily burdened. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. If you have ears to hear, that is God's invitation to you today. And you can respond to that invitation by praying in your hearts the prayer that I will lead you in right now. Let us pray. Father God, we hear your call and we sense the movement of your spirit. We have an inkling that you are at work in our hearts and in our lives and in this world. Lord, we desire to have lives that count and that have meaning and that have purpose. It is our desire to see the evils of this life turned to good to real good, to permanent good. Lord Jesus, we know that you have made this world and that you have conquered sin and death on the cross. We recognize that you died to pay the price of our sin. And so, Lord Jesus, this day we pray that you would give us the faith to turn to you and to turn away from our old lives and to follow you to follow your calling. Lord Jesus, give us ears to hear your voice. May we be found in you. May your victory be our victory. May we be some small part of what you're doing in this world. This we pray in your powerful name. Amen.